0: welcome to adaptify i'm mike i'm a paraplegic from new zealand and it's my mission to find the adaptifiers of the world people who have overcome challenges and found new creative interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility hey everyone welcome back to the adaptify podcast thanks so much for listening in once again my name's Mike and today's guest is Rob Smith. Rob is the founder of Active Hands, which is a company that makes gripping aids. Rob discovered after breaking his neck that his hands just couldn't grip onto everyday items and he was very limited on what he could do with his hands, so he developed some gripping aids, and it's taking the world by storm. It's an awesome company. Rob's also an accomplished athlete, both in wheelchair rugby and wheelchair marathon racing. Rob, such an honor to have you on the show today. Uh, welcome to the Adaptify podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Nice one, Rob. So for our listeners out there, why are you part of our adaptive community? What, um, you know, what uh, what was your life like before your accident and, um, and what happened?
1: I was a 20-year-old mechanical engineering student. Um, I was at Warwick University. I'd done two years of my degree. I went away on holiday with a group of friends down in the UK to Devon and managed to accidentally fall down a kind of cliff into sort of a gully cave system um, while I was away on holiday with friends and uh, had a spinal injury from there and had quite a lot of time in hospital uh, because of that.
0: So what did that mean uh, in terms of your function after that, Rob? What 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 limitations did you find yourself facing?
1: Okay, so my injury is what's known as the C5-6 uh, spinal cord injury. So it's a, an injury to my neck. So uh, the spinal cord that runs um, down the spinal column was damaged at that level. So the higher the injury, the more of your body that is affected when you have an injury. So... Um, At level C, five, six, as well as my lower body being affected, then also my hands are affected and things like my breathing and lots of other little bits as well. So it's more severe than than some of the lower injuries. Uh, So the hand function was quite a uh, a wake up call to how difficult life was going to be when uh, you couldn't do the things from your hands that you did before, let alone not being able to sort of get round on your feet and stuff as you
0: as before. So what were some of the limitations you found with your hands? What could you do? Could you not do?
1: Just everyday tasks, really. So my hand function is really, really minimal. I'm quite fortunate that my hands aren't clawed up into a sort of fist shape that some people do have. Um, but there's very little strength when it comes to gripping to the point where even sort of picking up a, a glass um, would be very difficult for me without sort of wedging it into my hand. Doing any tasks like, you know, shoelaces, zips, picking up money, you know, dressing, eating, all that kind of thing is, is is difficult, and you have to find ways around those problems.
0: So, I imagine initially that was incredibly frustrating. What was some of the emotions that you you were going through at that time?
1: Um, well, I was in hospital for nine months, so it was a long time to come to terms with these things, and uh, certainly went through phases of frustration uh, and realization of what future life was going to be like. I think the the, the ups and downs, but I do remember some pretty difficult moments particularly when realizing that my hands would not come back because i think being in a spinal unit you see lots of people whizzing around the wheelchairs and you sort of think oh right well, that's going to be me in uh, a month or two's time when i get out of bed but it was that realization that my hands probably wouldn't get any better that really hit home how difficult it was going to be
0: so what helped you get through that?
1: i had a lot of friends and family around me at the time and um my church and my faith did help a bit a lot as well um and then just to sort of support and realising, you know, there was still going to be a life after my injury. But um, it was just a sort of difficult time to come to terms with it and try and work out what that was going to be.
0: So take us through, you're, you're out of hospital and, uh, you know, did you did you go back to university? Did you finish off uh, your, your degree?
1: So I had my injury in the summer, so I took the whole of the rest of that year off, so it was another few months of... Um, being back at home and trying to get used to life outside hospital. And then I went back to university the that next financial year. So I took one financial year, what, sorry, not financial, one university year off. Uh, went back, finished my degree, uh, which was pretty hard work, to be honest. You know, it's not the most accessible campus. Well, it, it was just hard getting around. You know, I, I was an incomplete injury, so I wasn't fully... My my injury meant that there was some movement and feeling below the level of my injury, so I was really struggling hard to try and get around using crutches, which I managed to get some recovery. But I was so slow, it was so difficult, it was so hard to carry anything. I couldn't go off with my friends to the, the you know the bar for a coffee afterwards. So it was really hard work, and I was just exhausted every day. But I managed to finish my final year, um, get my degree. But yeah, it was definitely hard work.
0: Well done, man. That's great. And so mobility-wise, you, you mentioned that, and this is the interesting thing for spinal cord injuries, you could break your neck and be classified as a quadriplegic or a tetraplegic. Yep. Just for those listening, they're, they're both the same things. Tetraplegia is something that is used more commonly uh, in, I know in New Zealand that's a more common term. Quadriplegic's is mm. more used in the in the United States, in the US.
1: yeah,
0: um, but they're more or less the same, the same thing, but just from different lineages of uh, linguistics, I guess. Um, yeah. But you know, the, the thing with an incomplete injury, as Rob was saying, is that, you know, it's not black and white. So you may have, uh, you know, some movement in your legs, but you know, completely immobile in, in other parts of your body. Um, and yeah. so, so you were saying you you're able to, to do some walking with crutches but your hands yeah, so still really poorly. Um, you know, you had very still full function thing. with your hands, and I guess you use a wheelchair as as well as your primary means of mobility. Is that have I got that right?
1: So um, to be honest, initially when I came out of hospital, I was so set in this mindset that I need to get back to being an upright walking person because <clears> <throat> that's what people think recovery is, um, and that's what I thought recovery was. So. For the first few years, really, I was so determined and I did so much work to try and make my body be able to get back to being upright and, you know, using crutches and that sort of thing. And I was quite, you know, obviously proud of how I managed to get that movement back and to work really hard in physio and getting to the stage I could, that I actually probably missed out on quite a lot of stuff. You know, it took a few years for me to actually realise that I was less disabled in a wheelchair, even though... People didn't necessarily see that when they saw me in a wheelchair compared to seeing me on crutches. The ease of getting around in most situations is much easier in a wheelchair than it is on crutches, certainly for my level of ability and movement. So I missed actually missed out on a lot at those university days and those first few years just because it was so hard to do anything and I was just so tired that it was a real struggle. And it wasn't until I started playing a bit of wheelchair rugby, I saw the guys using the chairs more and gradually... I started doing a bit of on crutches and a bit in my wheelchair. I certainly I started to becoming a, a bit more able to do more and more things.
0: It's a really interesting point. When I was rehabilitating, I tried calipers, which are these mm. um, you know, these uh, support structures that you strap onto your legs and you basically use your hips or the upper body to try and swing your legs left and right. Now, I'm a complete injury. I have no feeling or movement below my waist. And mm. so, again, there was this perception that being upright and using crutches was more able than using my wheelchair. But the simple fact yeah. it was it was ultra tiring and really, really limiting in that uh, that mode and that caliper walking mode, so yeah, wheelchair. You know, and if you're in a mall and, and a flat ground, you're actually got an advantage. You can move really quick, much faster, and yeah. um, and it's actually quite fun uh, to to do yeah. so. You know, uh, I, I treat people and objects and in, in public spaces as. as almost like an obstacle course. It's great to zip in between and around and it's kind of like you're on a racetrack.
1: Yeah. And you can sort of push your hands against the walls to assist you to turn around a corner and things like that. And yeah, yeah, it's quite a good fun. And like you say, the the perception of the world is that people in wheelchairs more disabled than people on crutches. But in the reality, depending how able you are on your crutches or, or standing up or like you say for calipers, it's actually much more enabling to be in a wheelchair. I I wish in some ways that I'd had a bit less movement below my waist or in, in my lower body so that I would have got into my wheelchair a lot sooner because I think it would have opened, I would have missed out on less opportunities at that sort of time when I was really struggling to get around and I couldn't go very fast and couldn't carry things and et cetera, et cetera.
0: So if there's anyone out there listening, contemplating using a wheelchair now, embrace it get in there yeah. learn, it, learn how to use it well and um, and and really build your skills because it's a it's a valuable tool and it's actually a freedom uh, it's a freedom machine in essence so yeah. so get amongst but it I think Pro- it's,
1: I think it's hard as well because I when, when you have a spinal injury it's a very sudden thing you're suddenly like not able to move at all in bed and mm-hmm. then sudden gradually over time things get better and you get some movement some strength and etc and you there's a sort of progression, whereas I was in a sort of a hospital wheelchair. And then for my my mind, the progression was then from that to crutches to maybe being able to walk without crutches or a stick or something. And it seemed like a backwards step to go to a wheelchair. And I can see the the thinking of people as well who've maybe got a degenerative condition or they've got older or their, their mobility is reduced for whatever reason. That it feels like once you start using a wheelchair, there's no going back. To being mm. up on your feet again. But actually, I think a lot of people would find if they got a good wheelchair and some wheelchair skills that they would be much more able to do the things that they they, they feel that they're missing out on by carrying on with the sort of upright method of whatever that is.
0: Mm. Yeah, interesting. Hey, Rob, I'm curious to know what sort of financial support slash healthcare did you receive? Um you know, a lot of people in the community struggle with this. You know, you're either you're either covered by insurance, and that sometimes can just be luck of the draw. Sometimes you, you get a payout through an accident. Um, sometimes if you're in New Zealand, for example, you, you, there's a good public health care system that will look after you. What situation did you face?
1: Well, being in the UK, we've got the NHS, so um, I was, you know, I've never had to pay anything for health care at all. Um, I think... Um, in all the taxes i ever will potentially pay back into the system i'll never cover the f- costs of my nine months in hospital mm. and also i had i had two airlift helicopter rides to team various hospitals in the first day or two and i was in hospital for nine months in a in a specialist spinal injury unit so you know there are issues with the kind of nhs system but i wouldn't you know there's it is one of the best things that we've got in this country um and i wouldn't you know ever want to be in a country where that didn't exist so yeah i can be very thankful there for the nhs and for the for the health care received in the spinal injury unit and it was a specialist unit and it was it was really good so i so that there there were no cost to me at all basically um when i came out of hospital i didn't get any sort of financial any sort of payment for insurance or anything um there wasn't Uh, I didn't get any money for uh, like an insurance claim or anything like that Um, even though it was it was a possibility we did try and do something but um, nothing really came of that. Um, So there is some disability benefits you receive in the UK Um, and to begin with I was on you know a sort of a small but okay to live on amount particularly having previously been a student and been used to being uh, living quite cheaply (laughs) Uh, and as things went on now I run a small business i they some of the benefits are removed because i'm getting a wage from the business but there are some which stay which are you know will be permanent due to extra costs involved in having a disability which which you keep getting
0: yeah of course of course so do you manage your own consumable costs and you know and when i say consumable costs i mean you know catheters and um you know just aids that you need every day for uh for you know bodily functions
1: yes that all of that is covered by the nhs yeah. so yeah it's a good system you know it, compared to you know some of the other countries and some of the difficulties people go through um i'm very fortunate that the nhs covers all those costs of uh all sort of medical equipment and that you know i have a service where they are uh, delivered to my door every few weeks um and i can just order more when i need them
0: so good, yeah. You and I are both lucky in that respect. Uh, yeah. Hey, so let's shift up again now. Let's talk sport. You okay. you are involved in a couple of uh, sports um, and at high level. Uh, can you tell us a bit about those? Well,
1: not long after coming out of hospital, I think just before I came out of hospital, I went to the Interspinal Unit Games, which is a little games run um that Stoke Mandeville which is at the home of the Paralympic Games uh, and they run that every year for people who have been recently injured to go and try out new sports and see how they get on so I went to there just before I left hospital and I tried lots of different sports and one that I particularly enjoyed was wheelchair rugby so not long after coming out of hospital I went and did a few sessions training for wheelchair rugby really enjoyed it um, and by the time I'd um, finished my degree i started training fairly regularly with my local wheelchair rugby team. And I played rugby for 10 years, including going on a few tours, being part of the Great Britain development squad, um, winning some club competitions, et cetera. Uh, I think you've recently spoken to Natalie McGloyne, who's doing a lot of uh, racing now, um, car racing. Mm. Uh, she was uh, someone I used to play with and against and was also in the GB development team the same time I was.
0: Fantastic. So,
1: so I, I played that for ten years, on and off. And I think towards the end of that time, I decided that much as I loved the team sport, and I do still, you know, I do still miss it. I haven't not played so much at the moment. I wanted to do something for myself. So my kind of bucket list was to complete a marathon. So um, you know, obviously, wasn't going to run it. So I started doing some training. Borrowed a wheelchair racing chair, and started training for that. Um, and eventually managed to complete my first London Marathon, and things went from there. Really, I started really enjoying the racing, and um, that's what I still do now.
0: So, uh, for those listening, wheelchair uh, racing is essentially you're in uh, a three-wheeled um, wheelchair, um, one wheel out front and, and two beside, and you're, you're seated quite tightly in a, a kind yep. of like a like a it's kind of like a kneeling position. Yeah, in a kneeling position exactly, and uh, yeah, I did the New York Marathon one, and, won, and I, to be honest, I thought it was excruciatingly hard, <laughs>
1: really. Okay. um you know, you, you kind picked of a particularly it, hard marathon as well. I think New York. I've never actually done it, but it's very hilly.
0: From what? Yeah, I yeah, <laughs> it was my first first marathon, and to be fair, I, I mean, I trained as much as I could. Uh, yeah but i yeah i don't know uh it was it was tough um so i mean i take my hat off whenever i see you know the likes of uh tatiana um uh, McF- yeah, uh, McFedrin, McFedrin, tatiana McFadden, yeah. McFadden, sorry and uh you know yeah. other other sort of amazing wheelchair athletes yourself included Ro, i mm. really take my hat off to you what what is the uh you know what's you know trying to get into these things look i'll tell you what that's a tricky thing if you um yeah um you know and i end up they're really tippy and uh, you know i mean really really uh, quite a finely tuned piece of equipment and um yeah i found it a real challenge but you know it's one way you can get your heart rate up which is fantastic mm. it's often quite difficult if you're just trying to use your arms to get get heart rate going and um yeah, what would you say for anyone out there thinking about trying it? What's one of the what's one of the best aspects of uh, of wheelchair racing?
1: I quite like the individualness of it, the the fact that you know whatever you've put in is what you get back. If you're playing in a team, there's that great team spirit, but you're dependent on how the rest of your teammates perform on on the day. I quite like the technical side of wheelchair racing as well. Like there are some other sports like wheelchair, like um, hand biking and other other things as well. But I think wheelchair racing is particularly technical and that appeals to me. Um, The technicality of the push and also a lot of people do little tweaks on their chairs, the seating position. I also manufacture my own racing gloves. Um, I've been training like an hour or two ago uh, and I've got to get back into the garage um, after we finish this conversation and I'll be spending an hour or so making another little tweak to the the gloves, which is melting down the the plastic kind of little pellets and reconstructing the, the plastic of the glove and then sticking some rubber onto it to make it grippy. So I kind of like that side of it as well.
0: Yeah nice so yeah essentially you wear you wear a glove um, with a with a rubber compound right that grips the, yeah. the push, rim on the, push the, rim on the wheels and um, I didn't I didn't end up uh, training or, or the marathon didn't have any wet weather but I hear that's quite uh, quite tricky if it's wet um oh, it's, it's a complete
1: nightmare when it's wet if you consider the the contact point between your gloves and the push rims is a, f- a few millimeters really um and you're trying to transfer all that power from one to the other as soon as you get wet and rubber on rubber in the wet it's just horrible really so um people are still trying to find ways to try and get better grip wow. in the wet it's just a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, I wish I'd um, had the right solution myself.
0: I I had some wax or something. Ben Lucas, who yeah, um, was a former Paralympic athlete from New Zealand and did a lot of marathons around the world. He um, he gave me this wax, uh, but I never I never had to use it. Thankfully,
1: yeah, it's still it, uh, that's what a lot of us use, and it's still when it gets really wet, it's still sliding all over the place.
0: I suppose you're all on an equal, equal playing field there. So
1: yeah, um, yeah.
0: Until until you come up with some uh, great solution there. Solution,
1: wow. yeah. <laughs> I'll work on it.
0: Yeah, nice. Okay, so you touched on a little bit before about uh, running a small business. Tell us about the, the genesis of that.
1: So, like I said, my hand function is, is really poor. And I was getting really frustrated after leaving hospital that there are so many things I couldn't do. And even though my hands are quite weak, um, I have some reduced strength in my arms, but my arms – have the potential to be quite strong still. So um, I wanted to be able to train in the gym. Um, I was used to going to the gym a lot before my accident. And there are a lot of things that I found just very frustrating in the gym. It's fine if you're doing a pushing exercise, you know, if you're on a gym machine or something, you're pushing away from you like a shoulder press or chest press. But as soon as you start pulling towards you, if you haven't got a hand grip, it's just impossible to, to do any of those exercises. So it's at that point that I started... You know, putting my engineering brain to work um, with the help of my mum on a sewing machine at home, we developed some products um, that would help me to just grip very simple um, products using neoprene, which is wetsuit material um, and webbing to give it the strength and just products that would help. It will go around your wrist and then a strap would sort of come over the top of your hand, keeping all your fingers in place. Uh, a rounded buckle and then back onto itself with velcro and this would allow you to grip the item like the dumbbell or the weights machine with your hand but your fingers would be held in place by a very strong strap
0: mm.
1: so we we used a few of these we tried a few different development ideas and came up with um, the one that worked the best uh, and I started using that around in the gyms and things and, and then some some of the guys I was playing rugby with were saying oh that's a really great invention uh, where did you buy it And I said, well, you know, we just made it. I invented it and made it myself. You know, can you make me some? So we made a few more and a few more people were interested. And, you know, can we make some? You know, okay, but we'll have to, you know, charge you a bit of money. It's costing us some money to make all this. And then the interest just spread from there, really. It just grew very, very slowly into a company, basically, just selling a similar one product. Um, And over time, we developed a few other products. The company grew. We got a website. We sold a few overseas. And it was just a slow process of growing into what is the Active Hands company today.
0: Fantastic. So what were some of the growth hurdles that you faced and how did you overcome those?
1: To begin with, I think taking
0: payments was one. This was a few years ago
1: that we initially got started. We wanted to be able to take payments through a website. So that the costs involved in the working out ways to do that and working out how to make enough. We got to a point where we were getting quite popular um, and it was literally just you know, my mum making them on a sewing machine at home. Mm. Um, and we couldn't keep up with the demand. Um, so we had to get a few other people, train them up. And then we ended up buying some industrial sewing machines. And we had a sort of team of five or six ladies who knew how to use a sewing machine very well and who would make them for us. And then we went from the next jump from that to manufacturing in a small factory in the UK. New products came in, that kind of thing. So they're all little jumps along the way. You know, the first time you sell overseas or you take a payment in another currency or you work out how to do that and things like selling to other companies for them to sell and the profits that they need to make so that you can sell your product at a profit but they can also sell your product at a profit. Mm. All these little things are, are all jumps along the road that you kind of have to get, come to terms with and um, and overcome and, and push forward with your business.
0: It sounds as though it was very organic and um and you know the growth. You you controlled the growth rate so that you weren't sort of overwhelmed by by it all.
1: Yeah, very much so. And it you know it means that things are going to be very slow. But on the other other side of things, we've never had to take out any loans or anything. You know, all the, all the money that has gone from selling products has gone back into the company to you know buy the next lot of stock or to do whatever you need to do for the website you all that kind of thing. We've, we've always been profitable, but we've just grown very, very slowly. So the risk has been minimal.
0: Yeah, it's nice. So, Rob, you know, for anyone out there listening who may have an idea and may may see a problem to solve, what advice would you give them?
1: I think just make a start on it. I think um, the best way to try things and see if they work is to just to make a start, make, make something just to see if the concept of it will work. If that does work, then you know you can start making it from a, a material which is, you know, more likely to be able to be the, the end result and develop the product. Try it out, get other people's opinions who've you know are in a similar situation to you. What, whatever your product is likely to 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 be for whatever groups, and go from there. Really, and just um, listen to what people say. Listen, look at the problems you're in, encountering, and address those rather than sort of thinking oh no i'm right these people are not giving me the right answers here so therefore i'm going to ignore it but um that kind of thing just listen listen to the, the feedback that you're getting from people who are like yourself who's going to be using this product because they're the most important to get it right for
0: yeah absolutely um a couple of my projects that's what we've done first before doing anything is actually just asking whether or not this is a problem that others face and and uh, trying to understand more about you know the problem in, in detail, so that so that we don't just make assumptions around what we yeah. what we think, you know. And you know, it's okay to design something for yourself to solve your problem, but you know, ideally, you're going to put all that time and energy to help others as well. So you you're best to ask them straight away before uh, before going.
1: Yeah, and what we've also found as well, um, as we've expanded the products that we that I designed for myself were very much, you know, with the 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 idea to sell to people with a spinal injury. But as time has gone on, we've realised that people with strokes have similar problems. People with cerebral palsy have similar control problems with their muscles. And then recently, we've been encountering people who've got what what we would call limb difference. So maybe either from birth or through a traumatic injury or something parts of their hands are missing or amputated or parts of their fingers are not there and our main product doesn't really work so well for those people because it uses the fingers to to grab onto the the object grip so we've had to start designing new product often they were just a one-off someone will say oh you know your product is great but it doesn't work for me because i haven't got fingers so we would try a few ideas as a bespoke um, product for that customer Uh, And then sometimes those things turn into new products that you sell and then you start advertising to that market specifically um, because you've designed a product for them. So our limb limb difference gripping aid is specifically designed for people with missing fingers and hands. Um, And our other latest products, the small items aid, is from feedback from people wanting to hold things like pens and paintbrushes and drumsticks and makeup items, but like very small items rather than large weights and dumbbells and that kind of thing
0: yeah great point hey rob the the market that you're reaching how have you found i guess what i'm what i'm asking is what channels have you found beneficial as in is it physical therapists that recommend your products is it individuals that find you what who out there is championing your uh active hands company
1: um i think it is those but also lots of word of mouth. I mean, we try to make the best product that we can do, and word of mouth does go a long way. But as you know, you're never going to reach someone on the other side of the world through word of mouth in, in general terms. Mm. Um, so after a while, we once we got our website up and running, um, we are pretty active on social media now. Um, the massive advantage that you can do with social media, which you just couldn't do, you know, a couple of decades ago, is that I can reach someone you know, in New Zealand or uh, in somewhere else or the other side of the world um, with a targeted ad or they might find our website through a piece of content about our products that we've put around. And we can keep people's interest by posting interesting stories, not just about our products, but about disability and hand function stuff in general. Um, We've now got sort of 10,000 followers on Facebook um, and we're on sort of the other channels, you know, your, your Twitters and Um, YouTube and um, Instagram so they're all really good channels for us and it's also interesting because it's all relevant to to myself and to other people with similar disabilities so it's it's nice to have that little community uh, and we can get our information about our products out there so much more cost effectively than if we were to try and print a leaflet in a number of different languages and send it off to the right people who we would have to find somehow all over the other side of the world. Mm. So it, social media is, is you know, the, the, the great way to reach people for a
0: very niche product. Sure is. It's fantastic. Um, how do you overcome the, the translation issues with even with social media?
1: Um, it's still quite tricky. And, you know, a lot of countries don't really use Facebook or have other platforms. We do have our website translated into about five, six different languages but obviously, the cost of that is quite difficult. And when you change something, then you have to change the translation. But um, decided we've we've kind of translated the website as much as we can. But we don't translate every product. So the, we might have a two-line explanation of a, a product instead of the full description. Um, and we have like the the website itself translated. Uh, we have instructions printed in a number of different languages as well. But the cost of all this sort of thing is quite difficult. And, for example, trying to advertise to people in Japan, which we see is a very big market for us, particularly with Tokyo 2020 Paralympics coming up, is there are challenges involved in that. You know, it's a lot easier to advertise to someone in Australia or New Zealand or the US and Canada mm. than it is to to advertise to people who are maybe using different social media platforms and the language and the way of sort of getting your story across is completely different.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. One of our social media posts on Facebook received quite a a lot of traction in Spain and in Spanish-speaking countries, and Mm. there was, you know, something like 150 shares or something like that or maybe 200 shares and lots and lots and lots of comments, and of course all in Spanish. (laughs) So, um, you know, it was my first glimpse into the difficulties with translating. Um, yes, and you know, fortunately, I had my friend Yuri, who's actually um, speaks Spanish and was living in Spain, and so she jumped on their page and was uh, able to engage and comment and answer questions. That was fantastic. But uh, mm. but yeah, it is a it is a challenge. And like you say, the the English speaking markets are one thing, but you know, if you want to help others in other countries, then you know there is a, there are some challenges with language.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Well, but um, but we like challenge, right? So so it's a, Yeah, it, no, it's good. It's um yeah, it's not a it's not something you can't overcome. It's just uh, again, it's just a, we've got to find a way to, to um to do that. So yeah. you, you talked about your social media channels and we will link to that in uh, the story that will come post this podcast. Um, Thank you. I guess at Active Hands, is that the, the common handle that you use? Yeah,
1: Active Hands is is our website, just activehands.com. Um, and then our, I think our Facebook is Active Hands Co, um, and Twitter is similar. That that you know we can find the way to put all the links out on your site anyway. Yeah. But, um, if you if you search Active Hands in whatever kind of different social media platform, you should find
0: us. And there's some great stuff on there. So yeah, thoroughly recommend you check uh, Active Hands out and uh, follow along, yeah. join in the conversation. Um, Rob, what does the future hold for you? Are you gearing up for Paralympics in Tokyo is that uh, part of the plan and what what other things have you got going on
1: well I'd love to be able to make it to Tokyo 2020 but um we'll have to see you know I've been I'm more of a long distance racer so I was selected been selected a number of times for GB for marathon world cups uh and once for the European championships on the track so I need to step up my game a little bit more if I want to get the nod for um for a paralympic so it's definitely a possibility but it's going to take a lot of work um so i'll be training hard for that business wise we've got new products in the pipeline all the time we're always working on new prototypes and trying to get our products out to new people and family wise um we've just had a new baby girl called xanthi so i've got a now a six-year-old son called jacob and xanthi is just three months so uh, there's a bit of lack of sleep going on at the moment and um we're just coping as best we can with a new arrival, um, so that that's kind of making things a bit difficult at the moment. But we're we're, we're looking forward to um, have, doing being able to do better things as a family um, as time goes on and she gets a bit older.
0: Sounds like you had a pretty full, rich, and rewarding life there, Rob, and yeah. all all despite the fact that you had a, uh, a a nasty spinal cord injury. So you know, hats off to you, man. You're adaptifying. Um, and leading the way so uh, thanks so much for for all you do and thanks so much for joining um joining me today on the adaptify podcast really appreciate it cheers thank you it's uh, been great to chat to you i hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's adaptifier to learn more about adaptify and the products we have in development products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users go to Adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind the scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.